Father, there are some great prayers in the Psalms, and one of, one of the things that the psalmist prayed was that you would let him know the extent of his days and how transient he is. Our lives are uh, but a, a hand breath. We forget, Lord, at times that uh, in, in the midst of all that we've got going on and the responsibilities that are on our plate and the things we're trying to accomplish and the deadlines we're trying to meet, the uh, payrolls we're trying to take care of, the bills we're trying to pay, we forget, Lord, that we will not be here forever. We are passing through. This is temporary. And, and just taking um, 10 seconds to think about that uh, very dramatically changes our perspective on what's in front of us and what we're facing. You are from everlasting to everlasting. Before the mountains were made, you were. You are. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And uh, they were enraged, picked up stones to kill him because he was claiming to be God. But he was God. That's just the fact, pure and simple. You have always been, you always will be. We are temporary on this earth. Now, we will live forever. We never go out of existence. But on this earth, this is temporary. And depending on where we are in life, we kind of scope out our lives and kind of have an idea of roughly how much time we think we have. But we have no clue. But you do. You have, you, you, you have um, written the days of our lives. You have enclosed us behind and before. We take breath because you give us breath. It all comes from you. We can't take a step without you. We say all that to say thank you that our lives are in your hands. With, with, with all the responsibilities, with all the things we're trying to do, with all the bases we're trying to cover, we, uh, well, we're trying to be responsible. We're trying to do our work, and we're trying to do it well. But at the same time, Lord, underneath are the everlasting arms. We, we, can, we, can't, we can't pull things off. If, if you don't provide, we can't pay bills. If, if you don't work providentially in this way and in that way, we are not employed. Or if you don't do this or do this or do this, we don't have the health to work. It, it's, it's all dependent on you. And, and we stop here for a couple of minutes and acknowledge 
that you are the sovereign God. And you have your eye on every guy in this room. Every guy, his life has your full and undivided attention. How you do, not, how you do that, we cannot comprehend, but you do. There are guys walking in here with great burdens. We pray that your word tonight would unburden them. Take a load off their hearts and minds. Give them peace. There are others, Lord, that are just trying to um, figure out how to get through this week. Be there for them at the moment they need you. Thank you for just-in-time inventory that you invented and that you are always implementing in the lives of your people. I would pray for our minds tonight that you might help us to focus, that you might help us to concentrate, that as we look at some of these Old Testament giants, that we could uh, glean some lessons out of their lives that directly apply to where we are in our lives. They're done walking on this earth. We're not. We need wisdom, discernment, encouragement. We need your steady hand to guide us. Thank you that it's there. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. Some of us need some clear guidance. You say in 32 of Psalms, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So Lord, thank you that you're there for your sustaining grace that gets us through. Last week, some of us were in situations we weren't sure how we were going to get through the week and we got through it. Now here we are again. Teach us tonight in this time that we have. Help us to go home and sleep. Give us rest. And when we get up, there will be a hot, steaming bowl of mercy waiting for us tomorrow. For that we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been with us, Hebrews 11 is God's Hall of Fame. And you've got these Old Testament men and women in Hebrews 11. And the reason they're in there is that they were people who walked by faith. Hebrews 11:6. without faith, it's impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Some of these uh, guys in, in uh, Hebrews 11 are obscure. Uh, last week we looked at Abraham, and we'll look at him tonight. Abraham is not obscure. A Abraham is famous. Um, Christians look to Abraham because uh, Christianity is Jewish, quite frankly, as uh, Peter Schaefer said in that book she wrote years ago. So I have an Old Testament. The Old Testament is Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. Abraham was the first Jew. So Christians look to Abraham. We look to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jews look to Abraham. Muslims look to Abraham. Because he had a son by the name of Ishmael, who became the father of the Arabs. So uh, Abraham is famous. 
And Abraham is one of those guys in God's hall of faith, in God's hall of fame. And why was he there? Because he walked by faith. Uh, as we look at these different individuals, and as we're working our way through Hebrews 11, the question that, that I was thinking on this week is, okay, this is all fine, it's well, and it's good, and we know some of these guys, we know a lot about their lives, like Abraham. Others, we just have glimmers, we have little snapshots like Barak and Jephthah, we'll get into these guys in a few weeks. But what they all had in common was, whether we have a lot of information or a little information, they were walking by faith. What about us? Well, we're walking by faith, just like they were. How, how does a normal guy, how does an average guy, how, how does a guy who's not famous, I mean, that's just us. That's who we are. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said, God must love average men because he made so many of them. Most guys aren't famous. Most guys aren't well-known. Uh, most of the world's work is done by men who are not well-known. They're just guys that do their job. They fly under the radar. They show up. Uh, they do their work. They go home. They take care of their families. They pay their taxes. They pay their bills. They're just showing up. They're doing their jobs. That's how it is. How is it that we walk by faith? And... Uh, how does my life relate to Hebrews 11? Well, I would say, first of all, that <laughs> I, here's what I would say. I would say this. If you're here tonight, you're here for one of two reasons. Number one, you're here because Christ has pulled you to himself. He has invaded your life. He has sought you out. He has opened your blind eyes. He made you alive in Christ. He granted you faith so that you could trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You used to, if you trusted in anything, you trusted in your works. But uh, the gospel obliterates that because our best works are number two diapers. They're filthy rags. You know, that's on your best day. That's where you are and that's where I am. So the gospel is very simple. Christ came, died in our place. You say, you know, Steve, you said this every week for a week. Yeah, and... You shoot me if I ever quit. Well, I wouldn't shoot me, but metaphorically speaking, kick me, kick me in the gonads or something. I think that's a biblical term. Um, we never stop declaring the gospel, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried on the third day he rose. Uh, that's the gospel. He died in my place. And so he comes after me, opens my eyes, I, instead of trusting in myself or anything like that, I, I, I see that he is God, that he died for me. The punishment that should have come on me was placed on Christ. And now I'm born again. So now I'm in the process of walking by faith. So if you're here tonight, you're, and, and you're here because you've come to know the Lord. So that's the first group of guys. The second group of guys are here, and you say, well, I'm not there. And my question to you would be, then what are you doing here? And, and may I answer it? And you say, I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to be harsh or anything, but can't, let me just take a step back and tell you what's going on. What are you doing in a Bible study on a Wednesday night? What's happening is he's pulling you in. He's working. He's doing some stuff in your life. There's been some interesting things going on in your life. 
and you're trying to piece it together and kind of sort it out, and maybe it's not all clear and it's not all in focus yet, that's fine. We're glad you're here. Just keep showing up. Just keep showing up. Because you know what? The answer is here, and the answer is Christ. And what's happening is he's pulling you in. Uh, those of us that know Christ, we went through, uh, there was a time when we didn't know him. But, but, but what I'm saying to you, he's at work in your life. And you're in the process of coming to faith in Christ. Um, when you say, I, I don't know where you are in the journey of life. Last week I mentioned the 20-year-olds, 20 20 year and one guy said, well, I, afterwards said, I'm 30, and you didn't get to the 30-year-old guys. I don't know where you are in the journey of life. Manhood is interesting. Uh, in the 20s, I'll say it again, in the 20s, the issue is, uh, there are two issues. What am I going to do? Secondly, who am I going to marry? Those are the two big issues of the 20s. Are they not? Yeah, they are. Some of you guys perhaps are in your 20s. Maybe you have sons in their 20s. That's what they're working through. Um, then you hit 30, and you can't believe you're 30 because you were just 18. Funny how that happens. And a lot of times at 30, you've, you've picked a career path, and, and you're, you're married. Uh, you've got a kid or two. You know, you, you, you've got a, a mortgage now, and you've got payments, and you can't sleep at night because of the stress and anxiety and worry, and you've got pains in your chest. It's great being a man. Men are supposed to feel that. Men aren't supposed to be looking for a government check. Men are supposed to be providing and working. Now, if you have a legitimate disability, you don't want that disability. Well, you need some assistance. And historically, it was always the church that assisted. But hey, listen, you have a need, we have a different system, thank God that, that we, listen, we're all for helping those who for some reason cannot help themselves because it could happen to any of us, any of us, at any time. Uh, then you hit your 40s, you hit the midlife thing. Why do they call that midlife? They call it midlife because if you're 40, you're half dead. <laughs> right? Psalm 90, it's for the days of our lives, they contain 70, or if due to strength, 80 years. Now, if you work out and, you know, drink the green tea and all that stuff, and okay, what are you going to hit? 85, 87, 88, 90? Well, how long do you want, really, how long do you want to live after that? How long do you want to be in a nursing home? Now, I'm just curious. I mean, you know, everybody's, obviously, we want to take care of ourselves and all that, but I mean, how long do you want to live? I mean, really, come on. Wait, what's your, what's your number? 93, 97, 99? 103, okay. Do you want to be able to wipe your own drool or have someone else do it? Because that ha that's going to happen to all of us. What about changing your own diaper? There's a point, now, and I'm being very serious here. There's a point, and I've talked to men at this point. Um, you talk to... You talk to firefighters or EMT guys or first responders or police officers, and they've been in a situation. They'll tell you there are people, and, and they just want to die because of where they are in life. Life is so hard, and life is so painful, and life is so difficult, and this is not what they signed up for. 
Now, I'm not trying to depress you. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that it's healthy and it's good to think about life. When you get into the 40s, it's different than when you were 20. And what's happened is now in, at around 40, a, a lot of guys go into crisis because they're rethinking. Because you're halfway done with life and you had goals and dreams and all this you were going to do in your 20s, but now you're at 40 and reality sets in and maybe you're shaving one morning and it hits you like a ton of bricks. Hey, all those things I was going to do in my 20s, I'm not going to get them done, and you're not. And guys go into crisis and they rethink, I don't know if I want to be married to this woman. You see, and, 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 and wives do, some wives do the same thing. And is, is this the career path I want? And man, I'm locked in here. How am I going to change? And it, is, so guys get into crisis for different reasons. But you know what's interesting? Because you stay with it and the crisis will pass and God will navigate you. Then you hit 50 and you can't, 50, you can't believe you're 50. You're suddenly 50, 50 years old, 50. You're 50. You're half a century old. Half a century old. Yeah. And you're not done yet because you're going to hit 60. You're going to hit 60. It, it, yeah. And it's just, it's astonishing because now you're 60 and you don't know where you are. It, there, nobody laughed. That was supposed to be funny. I, I, think, I think it hit too close to home. But you start watching ads on TV you never watched before, I'll just leave it right there. <laughs> you start taking supplements you've never taken before. I'm talking about for your memory. And other things. Then you're 70. Then you're 80. And, oh, and at some point, you know what? You die, and it's over. Um, when, when you step back and look at life, let's, let's summarize it. What, what does a man's look, life look like? Here's what it looks like. You're born, you're a boy, then you hit the process around puberty where you're now suddenly things are changing, and you're in transition to becoming a man. And then you become a man, and we talked about this all last spring, that we've got a thing going on in our culture where a lot of young men don't want to become men for whatever reason. And there, and there are different reasons. But it's critical that they become men because that's why you were born, was to become a man. And you begin to work, and you get married, and then you have children, and then you got all these crying babies and you can't sleep at night, and then you get out of that phase, and then next thing you know, they're in their teens, and um, you got a whole other set of issues, and then the next thing you know, you got a wedding or two or three, and then you wake up one day and the house is empty. And it's you and your wife, and, and you're in a different season of life, and this is life. And um, what do you do with that? That's life. I want you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes. Now, we're going to look at Hebrews 11 tonight. 
But basically, here's what I want to say to you guys. There is, life is pretty simple in terms of the task of life. What is it that men do? Here's what men do. Here's, here's biblically what men do. Men, uh, and, it, and it used to happen earlier than it happens now because in our society, these guys, a, a lot of young men, the way things are set up, they go to school, they, you, you just don't get it, unless you're in the trades or something like that, which is very honorable. But if you're going to do something in the professional world, you're going to have to get a, a, a bachelor's and then maybe a master's. And a lot of guys are getting doctorates. And so sometimes you really don't start your life work until you're in your late 20s. Historically, you'd started in your teens. Um, as you're going to Ecclesiastes, let me say this to you. In essence, what is life? What does a man do? A man grows up and he goes to work and he gets married. And he does that every day for the rest of his life. He has kids, then he has grandkids. Then his body begins to break down and he's not physically able to do what he used to do. And you slowly begin to deteriorate or sometimes you quickly deteriorate and then you die. That's your life. Once again here, I'm just here to make you guys feel good about yourselves. That's my job, is it not? Isn't that reality though? Is that not life? You work, you get married, you do the same thing over and over and over again. And that's why a lot of times we look at our lives and sometimes we don't feel challenged, sometimes we're fatigued, sometimes we're worn out, we're exhausted. What is this all about? So let's go to um, Ecclesiastes. And as we go to Ecclesiastes, let me say this to you. What we're dealing with is pretty much what the guys in the Old Testament dealt with because men have always dealt with these issues. And this is why Solomon wrote about this stuff. If you look at... Um, and one of the things he talks about a lot in Ecclesiastes is work. What's the deal with work? Well, the Bible says if a man won't work, you don't eat. Now, if you can't work, that's another story. But if a man is able-bodied and you can work, then you work. And if you're not willing to work, you don't eat. So I was on the phone earlier this week with a guy, and he's got a boy coming up. He's going to hit 18. And all his other kids have done well, but this last one is a real problem in creating chaos in the family, and it's gotten bad disrespect, threats. As this boy gets bigger... Um, absolute irresponsibility, broken-hearted father, how do I handle this? And, and what was said to me, I told him that if this doesn't clean up, when he hits 18, he's out. I said, when does he hit 18? In two weeks. I said, has he cleaned up? He goes, no. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm not sure. I said, well, you told him what you were going to do. And you can't lose this. And he is out of control. And he just spent a half hour telling me he was out of control. And I said, you know what? You can't let him stay in your home. You can't do it. He said, that's what my wife says. I said, she's right. You've got absolute chaos on your hands. You have certain principles that your family lives by, and he won't live by them. You live by those principles. Your wife does. Everybody else does. If he can't live by those principles, he's out. Everybody in the family has to live by these principles. Why should he be an exception? Uh, he smokes dope. 
He goes down the street to his girlfriend's house, is uh, sexually involved with her, uh, comes home, he's all doped up, he's stoned, won't get up and go to school, won't, okay? And if we confront him, he gets upset. You cannot put up with that. It's killing this guy. Well, it's killing your whole family. Um, does he have a job? He won't, he won't work. And so then we just kept talking about it. And so on that 18th birthday that comes up in two weeks, he, he said, do you have any suggestions? And I said, well, what are you, I mean, you going to do? Have a birthday party for him on his 18th birthday? He goes, I don't think we're going to do that. I said, well, he said, he said, Steve, give me some ideas. I said, all right, you said he's out, and he's not changing yet. All right, here's what I would do. Uh, I'd walk in there at 7 a.m. With a, with a big thing of water, and if he's, if he's asleep, I'd pour it in his face. That's what I'd do. Because men get up, and he's 18. Well, he's not going to like that. You're, I, I imagine he wouldn't. <laughs> but I did that with my boys before, and now we laugh about it. But back then, it was no joke. If you're not up at 7, I'm pouring this water. And I told him I'd do it. And I did it. And now we laugh about it. But boys have to learn, you get up and you go to work. That's what, boy, that's, that's what men do. So I said, that's what I would do personally. I'd go in there and pour water in his face. And then he's going to get up. And then what I'd do is, uh, I'd take him in the, I'd get him in the car and... Uh, I drive him off and ask him where he wants to go because he's not taking a car because those are your cars. And, and then, you know, the whole thing about what, I mean, I've known guys that have taken, they've had sons like this and they've taken them down to the, uh, um, you know, the Army recruiting office or the Navy recruiting office and dropped them off. Well, he absolutely will not do that. Well, then that's fine. But, I mean, he's got a major problem on his hands, and he said, I, this is just killing me. I said, sure, it's killing you. He said, but all the advice and counsel I'm getting, because he's so far gone, is along the lines that you're saying. In fact, we have a friend. Uh, my wife has a friend, and she was a very rebellious young girl, very in the drugs and all kinds of stuff. And she, in fact, she sent me a text. Can I read you the text? And I said, yeah. And the text basically said, I wish my parents had drawn lines and stuck to them when I was 18, because if they had, I never would have gotten into the trouble that I got in over the next five years of my life. I said, well, there you go, man. He said, this is going to be very hard. I said, it's going to be hard, but he's got to learn to become a man. And God disciplines you, and God disciplines me, Hebrews 12. You've got to discipline. And Proverbs 19 says, discipline your son while there is hope. And in essence, what you've got, and I know this guy well, and I'm giving you just the gist of it. I said, what you've got is a sluggard on your hands. He won't work. Sluggards, three things about sluggards. They won't start anything. Secondly, they won't finish anything. Number three, they won't deal with anything. So on his 18th birthday, you're going to make him deal with this, the reality. It's tough. But it's what you have to do, because he's got to become a man. What does that have to do with Ecclesiastes? Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Actually, if you look at, um, you know, the, the words in the earlier part of 3 are famous. There's an, uh, uh, verse 1, there's an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, 
a time to plant and a time to uproot. What is planted? A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart, a time to sew together, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Well, this ought to be interesting because we're men. What are the tasks that God has given us to occupy ourselves? Well, let's see what he says. 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. We live for a certain season, but God has purposes for, for the times and the epics and the seasons that, that really we don't know anything about. This is bigger than just us. It's bigger than just our time. God has a plan for the ages. Look at verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. Isn't it interesting? It is the gift of God. Flip over now, if you would, to... Look at, uh, look at uh, 5, uh, 18. Here's what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. So you, you see, he keeps talking about work. And what does he say about work? This is good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself. Well, well how do you get to eat and drink? Because you work. You pay for your food and you pay for your drink. And enjoy yourself in one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. So a man's, the primary, the primary task of a man's life is to work and to provide. But then if you go on and you look at uh, Ecclesiastes 9, Then he gets into marriage and relationships. Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life with the woman who you love all the days of your fleeting life. He keeps talking about how life is fleeting. Have you noticed that? Enjoy life with the woman who you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Hmm. He keeps talking about work. He keeps talking about the importance of work and the place of work. Um, let's talk about work for a minute. Martin Luther, uh, flip over to Colossians. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Um, I was reading Martin Luther this week, and he had an interesting take on a man's work. Um, 
Let me read this to you. It's from uh, Dr. Gene Veith. He says this, according to Luther, the purpose of every vocation, and just stop for a minute. What's your vocation? How do you make your living? How do you pay the bills? How do you put food on the table? All right? Okay. According to Luther, the purpose of every vocation is to love and serve one's neighbor. They asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your strength, all your might. And the second is the same as the first, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He put the two together. You love God, you love your neighbor. That's the essence of biblical Christianity. According to Luther, the purpose of every vocation is to love and serve one's neighbor. The farmer tills the ground to provide food to sustain his neighbor's life. The craftsman, the teacher, the lawyer, indeed everyone who occupies a place in the division of labor is providing goods and services that his neighbors need. This is God's providential ordering of society, but for a Christian, the service rendered can become animated with love. For Luther, vocation was more than economic activity, far more than just economic activity, including also our callings in our families, the church, and the culture as a whole. Each of these vocations calls us to particular neighbors whom we are to love and serve. Uh, husbands are called to love and serve their wives, and wives are called to love and serve their neighbors. Pastors love and serve, serve their parishioners who love and serve each other's. Rulers are to love and serve their subjects, and citizens love and serve each other for the common good. Notice vocation is not primarily about serving God. For Luther, he was battling the high view of contemplation found in monasticism. If you go back and look in history, you'll find at a certain point through the influence of, uh, of the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of those guys thought, I really want to get to know God, so what do I do? I check out from the world, I go somewhere to some remote monastery, and either I don't speak or I don't interact with people, and Luther was brought up in that. He was raised in that. He chose to go into a seminary and into a monastery, and he would never be married. And when he began to study the Scriptures, and when he saw the light of the Gospel, that you're not saved by works, but you're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're justified by faith. And then he saw the indulgences that were being sold. Why were they selling indulgences? Well, they were selling indulgences because they had to build these huge cathedrals and pay for them. So a guy named Tetzel came up with this idea that we could fund this by selling indulgences that if you spend 5,000 bucks and you got a relative in purgatory, which by the way doesn't exist and is not in the Bible, but they taught that it was in the Bible. So you got a relevant purgatory and you want to get the guy out for 5,000 bucks, you can cut his time in purgatory by 100 years. And they had a whole system. And Luther said, that's not the gospel, that's blasphemy. And he pounded, um, wrote 95 theses, what the Bible says as opposed to what the church was doing, pounded it on the wall at Wittenberg, and the whole world changed. Um, Oh, and one of the things that happened as things began, these guys, these monks began pulling out of these monasteries because Luther influenced them. They began to read the Bible. And they said, you know what? I'm supposed to be out among people. I'm supposed to be loving people. How can I love people when I'm hanging out with a bunch of weird guys in here <laughs> who never talk to anybody? I'm supposed to be out. I, we're, we're salt and light. We're, we're not of the world, but we're in the world. We're, we're trying to put walls around. No, that's not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be out there, are we not? And so all these, uh, all these monks started saying, I'm out of here. And then you had these nuns. And, and 
uh, when you read Luther's biography, he would actually send these princes, these, these guys who had come to know the Lord that had the power of the magistrates, they would send uh, 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 soldiers to these monasteries and they would get these nuns out of the, uh, what do you call those things? Convents. And then these nuns, uh, and then what they'd do, they, he'd help set up marriages to get everybody married off. It was really wild because the gospel changed everything. We are, well, Luther began to realize that the gospel affects every area of my life. And, and we're not to be secluded, we're not to be cloistered, but we're to be out loving God and loving our neighbor, whatever our vocation is. If it's to be a pastor, then love them by teaching him the word. But you see, one of the qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy 3 is that he's a husband of one wife. God doesn't separate doctrine from family life. Uh, there's a pastor who's in big trouble right now in another state because he's, you know, some sharp guy, real glib, winsome, you know, people love to hear him speak and all that. And um, anyway, he's been having this ongoing affair for a while with a 16-year-old girl in, in his Christian school. And he got found out. And now it's really possible he's going to go to jail for a long time. And his defense was, well, I never thought of that. I've been following the article. Uh, well, I never thought of that. I mean, he just wanted a little dalliance here with this young chick. But see, there's something... <laughs> she's a minor. And in that state, they've got laws against a guy having sex with a minor. Well, I never thought of that. Well, think about it now. You should be focus not on a 16-year-old girl and fantasizing and involved with her physically, but you ought to be loving your wife because you're to love her as Christ loved the church. Your wife is your neighbor. See, what you've got in Ecclesiastes is that you've got a man. So what's a man's life? A man works and a man does what? He has family relationships. Those are, those are our responsibilities. We, we, are, we are to be husbands. We're to be fathers. We're to be grandfathers. We're to be uh, workers Whatever we do, we work our, do our work heartily, not as just pleasing men, but as unto God. Because he, with, with God, we, we want to excel, we want to do our work well. I've had, you say, what does this have to do with walking by faith? Hold on and I'll show you in a minute. I, I've had two guys come to mind that have come out to my house to do work. Uh, one guy came out to my house and we needed to do a some a kitchen remodel and some other stuff and anyway you ask around and somebody okay so I found out about this guy and he shows up and he's got a big fish sticker on his truck and he's got a bumper sticker he's got all these he's got a I know the guy's a Christian as soon as he pulls in and so I'm talking to him and you know and then we're about this and then he says well can we pray and I said yeah let's pray and then you know you're going to be here tomorrow and yeah I'll be here well he was late and then I had to leave and then I come back and it was several hours, and he was just getting started. And I said, I thought you were, well, I got delayed, and then I had this. And, and then I decided before we get started, I was going to do a prayer walk around your house. I said, a prayer walk? He goes, yeah, I just wanted to bless your house. I said, you know how you could bless me? You could bless me by doing this job. I said, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be uh, harsh here. But you know what I need for you to do? I need you to do this job, and I need you to do it on time and for what we talked about doing. He goes, oh. And he was kind of offended. Well, I just wanted the Lord to bless your home and your children. I, I said, you know what? I'll handle the prayer. You do the job. He didn't like that. 
He, he was offended. It really took him back. Hey, I can walk around and pray, and it didn't cost me anything. <laughs> then I got another guy, and I won't tell you his whole name, because if I tell you his whole name, you, you'll be calling him to come and work at your house, because this guy is what a Christian man and a Christian worker does. Uh, Brent uh, is an incredible plumber. We had a problem under, our house is old, we had a problem underneath the house, and we, I had different plumbers come out. This went on for a year. Nobody could fix this problem. We had this odor, and all, it was horrible. And somebody told me about this guy. We call him. He comes out. In fact, I was gone. You know, he shows up, uh, talks to Mary, okay, you know. And, and later I, I talk with him. He talks real fast. And uh, what he basically said was, she told him what was going on. He said, okay. And then she didn't see him for about 45 minutes. And then um, he's gone. And uh, then there's uh, just a, an invoice on the, on the, on the uh, table, and he was off to another job, and I called him. And I said, hey, uh, Brent, this is Steve Ferrari. He goes, oh yeah, I was out through your house, I got it all done, everything. He talks really fast. And he said, uh, here's what it was. And see, nobody else wanted to go underneath the house. And he said, you had this and this, I entered, went over there and did that, and he said, it was really a mess down there, but it's all fixed, I cleaned, and I don't think you have another problem with it. And, uh, but I had to go and leave for another job, and I, just, I, said, I said, okay. I was exhausted just trying to keep up with him, just because he talks so fast. And then, and then later on we had another problem and he came out and you know what Brent does? He doesn't mess around, he doesn't do prayer walks, he does the job and he gets it done. And here's the thing, he is so good and he's so, and about the second time he came out, I told Mary, I said, that, guy's, that guy knows Christ. The way that guy, he didn't have a bumper sticker, he didn't walk around the house with his hands up uh, doing prayer walks, he did the job and he did it right the first time and his price was fair. I said, I'm telling you, that guy's a believer. And the next time he came out, I said, hey, Brent, uh, where do you go to church? He goes, Denton Bible. I said, you go to Tommy's church. Tommy Nelson? He goes, oh, yeah, how long have you been there? I've been there about 17 years and 20 years. But I got to get, yeah, I don't have time to talk. I got to go to work. I got to go I love Brent. Oh, the thing is, the thing is, when you got a problem and you call him, he says, Steve, all right, I'll be out there. We just had to have a shower redone. He goes, Steve, it's going to take me 67 weeks to get out there. I said, all right, I'll wait for you. Because I know he'll do it. I know he'll do it right. And you want to take six or seven weeks? Because everybody in the county wants the guy. He doesn't do prayer walks, but he does good work. And he does his work to the glory of God. And you know what he does? He serves me in his vocation. What kind of work do you do? We're serving each other. Uh, our, uh, when, when you provide a service, and stop and think what your service is. Every guy in here is serving his neighbor, according to Martin Luther, and I think he's exactly right. We can't, we don't all have the abilities uh, to do what needs to be done. So other guys do it, and we help each other out when we do it to the glory of God. And we make a living off it. See, so much of us, we think the whole point is to make a living to, to uh, there's this whole mindset. We, we make a living to make all this money. If you look at Ecclesiastes 2, one of the things that one of the things that Solomon did was that Solomon tried to find out the meaning of life, and this guy had money coming out the wazoo. He was trying to find pleasure. He says to himself in Ecclesiastes 2, 
Come now, I will test you with pleasure. He said to myself. And, and he decided that he was going to get as much pleasure as he could. Now, here he does what a lot of Americans do. He began a building program and an affluence program, beginning with 2-4. Uh, this, this is why this guy worked. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. Not a house, houses. Houses for myself. And if you know anything about Solomon, the kind of houses that he built when the Queen of Sheba came to visit the guy, no, there was no spirit left in her. She was so overwhelmed by what this guy had done with the temple and then with his own personal homes and the homes for Pharaoh's uh, uh, daughter that he had built. I mean, this guy lived in luxury that was beyond belief. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He brought in trees that were not indigenous to Israel, and he had unbelievable orchards and gardens. You're talking Golden Gate Park. You're talking Central Park. You're talking Arboretum stuff. This guy brought in all the plants. He had ships that went out all over the world and would come back every two to three years. This guy wanted pleasure. I made ponds of water for myself in which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeboard slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. King Ranch was nothing. He could trump King Ranch. He could trump anybody, any ranch, any herd, any bison herd in Wyoming. He had more. He did. He could out-Turner Ted Turner. Okay? I collected myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men. I provided for myself male and female singers. He couldn't buy the CD, so he bought the group. <laughs> and he brought them to Jerusalem. Oh, and the pleasures of men. The pleasures of men. How many wives does Solomon have? Anybody know? A total of 1,000 wives and concubines. A 1,000. A thousand. There was no way he could handle those women. A lot of times he'd go in there and shake their hands. How are you? Nice to see you. <laughs> he'd have a cup of coffee and he'd leave. He said, don't tell anybody, okay? He couldn't handle that. But he was trying to outdo everybody. This guy had everything anybody could ever want, ever imagine. Every, the good life, the great life, better homes and gardens, architectural digest. He had it all. And wouldn't that be great to have it all? What does he say about his life? Verse 17, so I hated life. Verse 18, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Why? He was doing it for himself. Our job is not to do this for ourselves. Our job is to serve others. So in my capacity is my work. Are, are you a craftsman? Praise God for craftsmen. Praise God for guys that are electrical contractors. Praise God for guys that put in sewer lines right. Praise guys that do their work and they do it right. You're loving your neighbor. And, and you want to make an honest living and you want to have an income to take care of your family. That's wonderful. That's great. Okay. Why am I pounding this stuff and going on? This is what we do. We work. We work as men. We have tasks as fathers and, 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 and husbands. And we, we have our, 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 our kids are our neighbors. Our, our wives are our neighbors. We have responsibilities and tasks. And, and really a man's life comes down to Doing your work and your relationships. That's pretty much it. That's what's expected. All right. I took more time on this than I intended. When you get to Hebrews 11, you see men walking by faith. When a man walks by faith, here's how our life breaks up. Our life breaks up into what we expect life to be, and then we find our lives interrupted by the changes, and we find ourselves 
in the in the the things we never expected life to be. So here's what I'm trying to say. As you go through life, okay, what does a male do? He's a boy, he becomes a man. And there is a pattern to becoming a man that is expected. As you are going through the expected stages of life, whether you're 20 or 40 or 60 or 80, there are expected stages. At certain points, God will interrupt your life with the unexpected. And when God interrupts your life with the unexpected, now you are going to have to walk by faith because you've had a change, you've had a shock, you've had a jolt. When you go back to Hebrews 11, when you go back to Hebrews 11, you look at Abraham. There were three unexpected, unanticipated um, events that happened in his life. We're always walking by faith. We are always dependent on the Lord. We are dependent on the Lord. Half the time, we don't even know we're dependent on him. But Acts 17 says, in him we live and move and breathe. In him we live and move and exist. We can't take, you can't take a step without him. You can't take a breath without him. We, we go about our work. But without him, without his, without his power, without his help, you can't, you literally cannot move. You can't exist. Okay. But there are times when the unexpected, you guys get my drift. See, with this, this friend of mine who's got this 18-year-old boy who's just all messed up, why, why is their family such in turmoil? This boy is not doing what is expected of him. At this age, you don't act like you're three years old. You act like you're 18. There are expectations on a man, and you are at a stage where you are to be responsible and work and take care of yourself. That's your job. He's not doing it. Okay. There are times in our lives when God will bring the unexpected into our lives, and now we are aware of the fact that we never saw this coming. It shakes us. It stuns us. It surprises us. It's not what we want, but it's where we are. And now we're going to walk by faith, and we're going to be very conscious of walking by faith, trusting in God, trusting in God's promises, because if God doesn't come through and make a way, I'm going down and I'll never recover. Three things happened to Abraham. Verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and we, he went out not knowing where he was going. Let me just say this. There are times in your life where God will do the unexpected, and he will literally, for some men, he will bring about a geographical change in your life that you never saw coming. When you looked at your life, you thought you would, you know, you, you did your, your work to get ready for your career, and you sort of looked at your life and thought, I'll live here, and I'll be here, and my life will look like this. And sometimes, God calls us to another place we never saw coming. It'd be interesting to go around the room and just ask guys, uh, it would be, I'd be curious, it's always fascinating. How did you get to Dallas? Very few guys were born and raised here. Some, but not most, would be my guess. We have guys, how did you get to Dallas? Well, you know, where are you from? I, I'm just, you know, Jeff Scruggs pops into my head. I don't even know if Jeff's here. But I know Jeff's from West Virginia. And then I remember Jeff telling me uh, he got a job in California. I asked him one time, how did you get to Texas? Well, I got a job in California. Well, what happened there? Well, then I wound up, I don't know, he got transferred, and uh, he's in Texas. How'd you get to Texas? 
Sometimes God will shock us and stun us, and we never see it coming, and there'll actually be a geographical change. And when there's a geographical change, see, what happens is you were comfortable and you liked where you were and all this was going on. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Sometimes there's a geographical change. I remember the night Mary and I sat down and realized the chapter we had been in was over, and we literally sat down and said, where are we going to go? Where are we going to live? Where are we going to plant? Because with what I'm going to be doing, we can live anywhere. Where are we going to go? And in an hour, we knew we were coming to Dallas. It just made sense. We looked at our option. Peter Drucker said, when the facts are clear, the decision jumps out at you. And, but we had no clue. How in the world, okay, how is this good? We didn't have a clue. We didn't have a clue. And then I look back over 22 years, and we see the hand of God all over us. Just like you look back and you see the hand of God all over you. But we were walking by faith. Our, our lives are interrupted. Uh, here's the second thing that happened to him. If you look at verse 11, by faith even Sarah herself perceived ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. If you look at uh, the story of Abraham, Genesis 12 all the way into 22, He's called by God to go into a different land at the age of 75. He's a wealthy man, has a two-story home. We talked about this last week. But what happened is God calls him into a new land. And when you look at verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, he's dwelling in tents. Instead of a two-story house with cross ventilation, he's living in a tent. You see? He's not living in one of Solomon's houses. But see, what was he looking for? He was, he was living as an alien in the land of promise in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What you're looking for is not on this earth. See, that's the mistake men make. I'm going to build this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it on earth. You know what? That's not what you're after. Ultimately, man has eternity set in his heart, and what Abraham had his eye on is that this isn't all there is, I'm going somewhere when I die. That's the point. God's been good to us. Most of us have very nice lives. We have nice homes, all that. We thank God for it. But that's not where our hope is. We're going to a city whose architect and builder is God. That's where we're going. So he calls this guy Abraham out. And then another thing that God says to Abraham is, hey, by the way, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, I don't even have a kid. How can you have a, a great nation if you don't have one boy? Well, I'm going to give you a son. And this guy, uh, he's, he's getting up in age. And his wife is too. And, it, and, and this gets ridiculous. And finally, at the age of 99, and his wife is 89, an angel of the Lord shows up, and they prepare a goat and do the whole goat thing and have a little barbecue. And, and they realize he's an honored guest. And the angel of the Lord says, next year at this time, you'll have a son. And uh, Sarah laughed. And the Lord said, you laughed. And she said, I didn't laugh. If the Lord says you laugh, you better fess up. <laughs> oh, but you did laugh. And guess what? A year later, they had a boy. Uh, Abraham's 100, she's 90. That can't happen. That can't happen. That's impossible. And it says in Hebrews 11, uh, verse uh, 11, by faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. What's the proper time of life? before a woman hits menopause. She's not menopause, she's postmenopausal by about what, 40 years? You, you, and, and Abraham, listen, this is uh, dispensationally pre-Biagra is what this is. 
So you got two impossible situations. You know what you call this? You call this deadness of means. There will be times in the Christian life where God will work in your life at a particular time in your life where you're fairly comfortable, and suddenly <laughs> you've got deadness of means. That, may, that might mean you have no cash. It might mean that what you need, you don't have. That's not a problem to the Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. See, all this is unexpected. At, a, at, a, at an age in life where you don't expect to have a child, God gives him a son. Now, hey, guys, I want to say this to you. As, as we get older, life changes. And, you know, we have our, uh, we, we have our uh, expectations of life. You know, there are the seasons of life. It's just pretty normal. But because you know the Lord, don't be surprised if he does something un unusual in your life at any given time in your life. He has things plan for us we know nothing about don't just think because you're hitting 60s and you know the retirement thing and all that uh, listen there's nothing wrong with you know being in a profession and all that and and then you you've served your time okay but now you're not going to check out you still need to love your neighbor you still see men still need to be productive it might be looking different you just never know what the lord's going to do i was talking to a guy this morning and and he's retired and you know what he's excited about? You know how excited this guy is? Because he's heading to Africa to help this, this ministry, these pastors back in the bush. And one of the things, he's not a seminary grad, but he knows engineering. And one of the things he can do with them is help get water wells. Because if they can have clean water, uh, nobody else has given them clean water. And it helps the pastors because suddenly they want to, they got clean water. They want to hear about this book that the pastor has, and it's just an inroad into giving the gospel. And, and this guy is not a preacher, he's not a seminary grad, but he knows how to do this stuff. Every time I've seen him over the last four weeks, this is all he's talked about. He never saw it coming. Five years ago, he never had, it never, this wasn't on his radar, but it's on God's radar. It's the unexpected. He never saw himself doing this, but it's part of the plan of God. And he's not sure, how am I going to get the money? Well, I don't know, but God's put this on my heart. Well, if God's put it on your heart, you know, God's probably going to follow through and make it, make it possible. He goes, I think he is. He's walking by what? Faith. Does he have the money in the bank? No. But God's clearly at him. And God's providentially opened doors. Why would God do all of that and God not provide what he needs? God doesn't work like that. He's talked to a number of different Christian guys in his life who have wisdom. In an abundance of counselors, there's victory, the Bible says. All the counsel is, you should do this. Then do it. All right, here's the third thing. Is it, is, is, so the second unexpected event, the first unexpected event is I want you to leave your family and I want you to leave your geographical boundaries, and I want you to go to the promised land. He gets to the promised land, he's living in a tent. What's the second one? I'm going to give you a son. That doesn't happen at this stage of life. You don't know what God wants to do at this stage of your life. So be prepared for the unexpected. It could come out of left field, and you'll never see it coming. As one guy said to me one time, <laughs> he worked for Chuck at Insight for Living. I was having coffee with this guy. I said, how in the world did you get an insight for living? And he said, well, it all begins. I was living in Flower Mound, 
and my wife had just driven off with my kids, and I was studying to be a pastor, and I had money in the bank, and my whole life fell apart, and I, I was in my backyard, and there was no one who lived behind me, and I was yelling and screaming at God. And I said, you got to help me. I've lost everything. And he said, within 72 hours, I was working inside for a living. And then God began to restore me and restore my family. And as he's telling me this story, we're at Starbucks right down here on Preston Road, right by, by the donut place that went under. Remember that place, Krispy Kreme? We're right there, and we're outside, and we're sipping coffee after a Bible study. And as he's telling me this, and the Lord began to restore my family, a, horn, a little horn honks, and he looks over, oh, there's my wife and kids, and the kids are in the back looking out of the suburban, there's his wife. And I thought, no, that's pretty wild. And he said, you know what, Steve? If I had a million years when I was in that backyard to see how God was going to fix this, I never would have come up with what he did. You never know what God's going to do. I see other guys in here that I know, and I know pretty well, and God has done things for them at this stage in life they thought was never going to happen. And one guy's nodding at me, and I'm nodding right back to him because I rejoice with him. Now to him who was able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask or think. You don't know what he's going to do. Oh, here's the third thing that happens. And I'm out of time, but hey. Verse 17. By faith Abraham was tested, offered up Isaac. Well, who's Isaac? Oh, that boy God gave me. What now? Genesis 22. Did he love that kid? You bet he loved him. That boy starts growing, and at a certain point, God says, I want you to take Isaac, I want you to go to Mount Moriah, I want you to sacrifice him. So if you read Genesis 22, he gets his servants, they head to Mount Moriah, just before they ascend to that mount, he says to the servants, you stay here, this is interesting, he says, you stay here, we'll go to the mount, and we shall return. That's interesting, because God had told him to sacrifice his boy. And as they're heading up, his son says, hey dad, uh, where's the sacrifice? What are you going to say to that? Do you ever worry about your kids asking you something you can't answer? Do you ever worry about that? Jesus said to his disciples, it shall be given to you in that hour what you need. And God gave him in that minute what he needed. Hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? God will provide a sacrifice. They got up there. They made that altar, got the kindling wood. He strapped that kid on that thing. He took that knife, a pie, and he plunged it into his heart. Blood started dripping on an altar, and God said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. <laughs> Is that what happened? No. He, he got up like this, and God said, hold on. Hold on. Get that boy off that altar. God was testing him. Oh, and by the way, as he was taking him off the altar, there was rustling over there, and there's, a, there's an animal trapped in the briars. There's the sacrifice. At Moriah, uh, Moriah is where the Temple Mount is today, Solomon's Temple. Jesus, that whole section is called Moriah. Jesus was, the Lamb of God was crucified right in that area of Moriah. Isn't that interesting? Um, don't be surprised, guys no matter where you are in life, that when the unexpected comes, you'll find yourself being tested by God. 
Job was tested by God. Count it joy, my brethren, if you encounter various trials. When? Count it joy, my brother, James 1. When you encounter various trials, watch this, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We've got guys in here right now, financially, business-wise, as one guy emailed me this week, I'm hanging on by my fingernails. As another guy in this room said to me at lunch a couple of years ago, we were sitting at a table, he took a, he took a salt shaker and he moved it right to the edge of the table, that it was half off the lip of the table and half on. And he said, this is where God has had me, has had me the last several years. That's a tough place to be. And then he moved the shaker back and he said, and he's done this for me and I praise his name and I'm back here. But it keeps moving back towards the edge. Why? Because his faith keeps being tested. Count it joy when you encounter. Not feel it as joy. Think it as joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So can I say this to you guys? We're all walking by faith. We need endurance, because let me tell you something. We get tired, we get fatigued, we get worn out. So Steve, what do we do? Keep showing up and keep going to work. Keep being a father, keep being a husband. Keep showing up and doing your responsibilities. That's our job. And keep trusting him and keep your Bibles open and watch him make a way where there is no way and then let me say this, and I'm done. When he delivers you, make sure you tell people that he delivered you. Your kids need to know his deliverances. Your grandkids need to know the deliverances. Because as they grow up, when you're gone, they're going to be walking through times, and they don't see a way out. But I remember the time he came through for my grandpa. I remember the time he came through for my dad. Well, I serve the same God. I trust you, Lord. Would you come through for me as you did for them? And he will. And then we'll all meet up in heaven. It's going to be pretty good. He'll get us through the unexpected. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for work. Thank you for life. Uh, I take a, a minute and I pray for the guys who are not able to work who wish they could, uh, guys who were, we have guys who would like to be at this study, but they're confined to, a, to bed at home, or confined to wheelchairs, or they're just confined. It's not where they want to be. Uh, encourage their hearts, Lord. Give them grace. We have other guys in here that are just worn out from just trying to make the numbers fit and cover their tail here mid-month. They're looking at the end of the month. They don't see a way it's going to work. Make a way. Would you make a way? Huh. You're the living God. We may be in an unexpected place, but our feet are firmly planted on the foundation of Christ and his word, which cannot fail. Encourage us with these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.